All right. Well, I want to start this morning with a, a small story. Um, when I was in college, I had various part-time jobs helping offset the cost of college. Um, and I haven't told any of my job stories in a while, because there for a while, when I was, I was telling a lot of these different job stories, and like, what have you not done? It's like rolling hot dogs at the, the World Series down to, you know, whatever, cleaning out gutters for an old lady next door. Like, yes, I, I was a rose gardener. All these things are true. Um, but one of the jobs that I had, I know, it's weird. I was, though, rose gardener. Um, when I was in college, um, one of the jobs that I had was um, I had... I, I went to stay with my parents for the summer in Nashville, Tennessee, and I got a job with a general contractor as like a painter, okay? And I did a lot of painting that summer, a lot of painting, but because I also had a clean driving record, which if you haven't worked in the construction industry much, you might know that's kind of a rarity <laughs> in the construction industry. So because I had a clean driving record, I was also, and I was, let's face it, I was the least skilled painter on the whole crew, I was the guy that would sometimes be sent from one job site to the next to go bring tools or pick up supplies or all of that, right? Well, one day, um, I showed up to work, and my boss told me, hey, I want you to take this coworker. His name was Nacho. I don't think his mom named him Nacho, but that's what he went by, and that's how he introduced himself to me, and everybody else knew him as Nacho. And he said, take Nacho's truck, and I want you to drive over, and I want you to pick up um, a couple of these things, bring them back to this job site, okay? Now, this was Nacho's personal truck. It was, it was an older truck. I actually um, went on the internet to give you the visualization. Here's a truck. Gio, you got a truck for me? It should, there you go. You can kind of see it. 80s, 70s, 80s Chevy pickup truck. It was actually even that color. It was the light blue one and white, all right? There's a lot of those. So if you lived long enough back then, you remember seeing those. So Nacho had a truck like this. And it, it wasn't, this one's like restored. It wasn't in that kind of shape, but it was this truck, all right? And we were working on this house and, and uh, remodeling this entire, this very old house from the 1800s. And uh, in, in this house, it was kind of in this obviously older part of town in Nashville. And it, there was no, um, there was an alleyway kind of between that and some of the other houses that were there, but it wasn't like a paved road. It was literally like grass, alley, all right? Um, and he had pulled the truck in and pulled into this, this, there was this big privacy fence, like eight-foot wooden fence, and it had gates you could open up. And so it's, the truck's just parked in the backyard. We're doing all kinds of work here, okay? And so his truck's back there. He gives me the key. I go, I jump into the, the truck. Now, here's the thing you need to know about Nashville in the summer, all right? There's this thing called thunderstorms, all right? We don't experience this, and the rain that we get here, when we call it rain, it's not rain, guys. <laughs> we don't get rained on like they get rained on. And so you'll go in the middle of the summer in Nashville, and it's sticky and humid and hot. And I don't know, some people really like it. Um, it but it's very hot. And you'll go from a perfectly sunny day, clear, still humid, of course, but clear and everything else. And then all of a sudden... The clouds roll in, everything gets dark in the middle of the day, and you'll start getting thunder and lightning, and it'll pour rain, and then be gone again in a few minutes. And in a, the, the span of just a few minutes of time, you go from just dead still stickiness to rain and wind and all this, and then back to the same, same old stickiness, all right? So I'd gone out to the truck, 
get that all ready to go. I open up the, the big wooden gate. I get into the truck. I start backing out. And one of these thunderstorms is starting to run, kind of roll in. And so right as I'm backing out, a gust of wind from nowhere slams the door shut um, on the gate next to the truck as I'm pulling out. And it flies by and it hits. If, if you still had that picture, go back to the picture again, Gio. You see the little chrome mirror there on the side, the side mirror? It smacks the side mirror and throws it forward. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? So I just put the thing in park and scoot over, roll down the window, pop the thing back, thinking, oh man, is this thing going to be shattered? No, totally fine. Flip it back into place. Good. I'm like, all right, no problem. Go on, run my errands, drop off the stuff, park the truck, toss Nacho his keys. We're all good. Or so I thought. Okay. The next morning, I come back to work, and I hear Nacho and a couple of other guys kind of having this conversation slash minor argument over something that I'm realizing, now they're always kind of arguing, there's always something going on, that's how crews work, <laughs> there's always some issue, but they, as, I, as the day goes on, I realize, oh, they're talking actually about Nacho's truck, and Nacho's saying, somebody dented my truck, and we've got all these issues, I can't believe this, oh, you guys were all parked back there, and this wasn't that way, and all this, and now what I would like to tell you is, I being your pastor, the up you know, the, 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 the moral man that I am, I stood up and said, Nacho, maybe it was me. But I didn't, okay, I didn't. Now, you didn't want 19-year-old Brett to be your pastor anyway, I promise, all right? But I, I didn't say anything, and, and I wish I had spoken up, but I didn't. And so for about a day or two, I walked around with a guilty conscience, wondering, oh man, what happened and was this me kind of a thing. And as you, if you've ever experienced that whole guilty conscience thing, your mind's going through all kinds of stuff. You're justifying it. You're, ah, oh, well, you know, I was sent to do this thing or excuses. Hey, I didn't know if that happened and I didn't, see, you know, and, and all this is going on. But then you also have kind of this sick feeling in your stomach. Anybody ever been there before? Your thoughts, that's all you can really think about. You go to bed thinking about this issue. You wake up thinking about this issue. You might dream about this issue. So finally, I went to my boss and confessed. Now, as it turned out, Mr. Wilson, that was his name, true story, Jim Wilson, went over to Mr. Wilson, knocked on his door, and Mr. Wilson, I explained to him, I'm like, hey, I took his truck that morning, remember you sent me to do the stuff, and I might have been the one that did something to it. And he's like, eh, this stuff happens all the time. It's no big deal at all. I called Nacho in, I gave him a couple hundred bucks, he was thrilled, and he said, I looked at the thing, I'm not even sure that that dent is even, like, it happened recently. That could be from who knows when. He didn't think anything about it, blew it off, and went on. Now, here's the thing, to him it was no big deal, but to me, I was like, ah, oh, the weight is relieved, the pressure is off my shoulders, I've, I've confessed, I'm free, and I felt great. Have you ever experienced something like that, where you've carried guilt? and had a guilty conscience? Well, the reason I bring all this up is because today we're going to look at some guilty consciences, and we're going to talk about how that affects our relationship with God as well as others. Now, just to catch you all back up to speed, in case you weren't here last week, we're studying the life of Joseph. And Joseph went from the prison to the palace in a single day. And we studied that. We looked at that. 
he had been called in to, if you remember, interpret this radical dream that Pharaoh had had. And the, the king of Egypt. And because of his God-given insight to this dream, and because of the God-given wisdom uh, that, that, that allowed him to know what to do about it, Pharaoh appoints Joseph, who had literally that morning been a prisoner, he appoints Joseph to become second in command of all of Egypt. All right, a nation. He goes from a prisoner to the palace, literally. And God had shown Joseph that there would be seven abundant years followed by seven years of severe famine. All right, and the first seven years have already passed now, the years of abundance. Joseph, in that time, kind of established himself. He got married, he had a couple of kids, he starts you know, becoming this leader in Egypt. But now it's time for the seven years of famine to arrive. Okay, and that's where we pick up today in Genesis chapter 41, starting there in verse, verse 53. All right, so read along with me. Here's what it says. It says, The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished... The people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, and what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, it appears that only Egypt had gotten this information. Um, or maybe God spoke to some other leaders in other countries and they didn't pay attention. I don't know. But Egypt is really the only land in the area that's prepared and ready for what's going on. And a famine of this scale would have been enough to strike, the, strike fear into the hearts of these government leaders. I mean, think about it. When things are not going well in your country, who is it that people usually point at? Whoever's on top, whoever's leading things, it's got to be their fault. If it wasn't for that person in the White House, if it wasn't for that person who's a senator, if it wasn't for that, then everything would be fine. And, and we're not going to go down that path, guys. Come back to me. <laughs> right? No. Um, but a famine of this scale would have really caused some issues. But because they knew it was coming, Pharaoh simply redirected people to Joseph. They start coming and complaining to Pharaoh, like, we're all going to starve. He's like, no. It's, don't worry about it, no problem, just go talk to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do that. And so, uh, Joseph begins to execute phase two of the plan that God had inspired. God had told Joseph, hey, build these storehouses, fill them with grain during the time of, of plenty. And then, when the time of famine comes, then you open that up and everybody will have a bank of this grain that they'll need to get them through the, the years of famine. And, not only that, as we'll see here, they had plenty to spare to sell to the neighboring countries. Now, although Joseph was prepared for what was going to happen in the natural world, in the kingdom, he wasn't prepared for what else would be happening next. And now the story, as we move into chapter 42, travels back to Canaan, where his father, and, his father Jacob and his 11 brothers still lived. All right? So chapter 42, verse 1 says, when Jacob 
learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, Joseph, if you remember in the story, had been Jacob's favorite son. Joseph was the one that had the coat of many colors, right? Joseph was the favorite. Joseph was the one that was spoiled. Joseph was the one that Jacob paid all the attention to. And it created this tension in the rest of the family. The other brothers hated Joseph because of that. And not only that, remember Joseph had these dreams, these radical dreams that everybody else would come and bow down to him, which made him even more despicable in the eyes of his his, uh, his brothers, right? And, and when he was lost, remember when, when the brothers sold him into slavery and then told their dad, oh, maybe he was killed by a wild animal and led him to believe that, that loss was devastating for Jacob. His favorite son from his favorite wife had been killed. And he couldn't bear the thought of losing Benjamin as well. Now, Benjamin was also, Benjamin was the one that was born as Rachel was dying in childbirth, all right? And so he was even younger than Joseph. So of all these older brothers, um, Benjamin was the baby. And, and he stayed back. And that's a key part of the story. That's why it's here in this, all right? Now, here's the thing about Egypt. Egypt's location had always made it an important region for trade. The, the Nile River Delta was and still is a rich and fertile region. And it's a gateway into Africa uh, from, from the Mediterranean regions and well, as well as the Middle East. I have a map for those of you who loves maps like me because you like to picture what's happening and where it is. So here you go. Um, if you see here this big green area, and this is just, I just took this from Google Earth, all right? So still to this day, it's deserty in here and it's green in here, all right? And the reason it's green in here is because of this blue line that splits, it forks here. This is the Nile River today. And this Nile River flows down into the Mediterranean Sea. And so what happens is you've got this this area called the Delta that is loaded with all this good soil. And so because of that, crops just grow there really well. So even if nowhere else will seem to grow food, this area does. And so Egypt has always been known as a place, well, for all those surrounding regions, well, if we can't get food here, we can probably get some in Egypt. So uh, Jacob and his family, where Joseph was originally from, was Canaan. So what they would have done is they would have traveled down here through the desert to come over here into Egypt. All right? So that's where we're at. That's where these things are happening. And so people came from all over looking for food. Now, here's what it says here um, in in verse 6 of chapter 42. It says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, And they said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. 
And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Remember those? They came and they bowed down to him. It all came flooding back. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. And by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Now, I really doubt that Joseph personally made all of the transactions for the grain sales, right? That would be a miserable job, (laughs) Uh, I doubt that was the case, but he was the one responsible for this entire industry and probably handled the larger purchases and foreign customers. Um, Because when you're the only nation with food, that would put you in, yes, an incredibly powerful political position over everyone else, but it would also make you a target for people thinking, well, this may be a good opportunity for us to come in and overthrow Egypt. We may be able to come in here and steal some of these, you know, we'll take a city and take a grain silo for ourselves or whatever, right? And so they were going to be careful with some of these um, foreign investors coming in. So when 10 brothers come, brothers come looking to buy enough grain to feed hundreds of people for several months because that's how big the family has gotten there in Canaan now, It requires the manager's approval, so to speak. So no doubt, they come in and say, we want X amount of grain. And they're like, oh, that's like bulk purchase. we got to send you down over here. And you're going to meet with this guy. And so they come in in front of Joseph. Now, when those brothers get in front of Joseph, it would have been a shock. A shock to Joseph. He didn't know if he'd ever see his family again. Maybe he had thought before, you know, when this all settles, I'm going to go back to the land and see if I can find my family. Maybe, or maybe what he thought was, here's all I know for sure. All my brothers hate me, enough to send me into slavery. My dad was old when I left. That was 20-something years ago. He may not even be alive. Why would I go back and see those guys? So in his mind, he's thinking, I'm never going to see these people again. And, and that's my past, and that's, that's beyond um, me. That's, that's all there. But, but he knew that this, this is them. So thinking on his feet, he decides to keep his identity a secret. Now, like I said, it's been 20 years since any of these guys have seen Joseph. All right? And not only had he grown and changed from a 17-year-old to a 37-year-old, some changes happened between 17 and 37, right? <laughs> um, not only had that taken place, he had been completely integrated into Egyptian culture. All right? He's speaking their language. He's wearing their clothes. He, like all the Egyptians at the time, was shaving all of his body hair from head to toe. Very different than the Canaanites of the time who'd be in these big, long robes, giant beards, the the whole thing, right? Speaking a complete different language, everything else. 
Very different than the nomadic people of Canaan. And furthermore, it's not like they said, oh, we're going to bring you in front of our guy named Joseph. That might have rung a bell for them. No, it's not. You are coming before the second in command of all of Egypt, Zaphoneth Paneah. That's the guy's name now. All right. So he's got this very Egyptian name. He's in an incredibly powerful role in Egypt. He looks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He's an Egyptian. So for these brothers, they had no idea that they didn't have the tiniest suspicion that this could be their little brother. So Joseph used this cover to see if he could get some information out of his brothers. And he does it by knocking them off balance and accusing them of being spies. So they come in thinking, okay, this is great. We're going to get our stuff. We're going to go. And then they walk in, and, the, and now they're being accused of trying to overthrow the most powerful nation in the area by number two in control. This is not good. That's not what you want to have happen. You don't want the vice president to think you're a terrorist when you go in to see him, right? You don't. All right, verse 18. It says, and on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. They agreed to this. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them. He's the oldest, remember. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Three days in custody was enough for the brothers to do some soul searching. And some arguing. <laughs> All right? And it also caused some deep guilt to bubble up in them. Some things that they thought they had put behind them. 20 years behind them. And for 20 years, these men had carried a secret sin. They had lied to their father. They'd lied to their wives. They'd lied to their kids. Hey, you know, they always talk about, you know, Grandpa Jacob, he had 12 sons. What happened to number 12? Oh, well... You know, he died in the wilderness. We lost him many years ago. No, they've been, they've been holding this for all this time, locked up in their souls. And it had been gnawing on them all this time. Ten guilty consciences is what we've got here in front of us. Ten of them. What is a conscience? I keep saying that word. What's a conscience? Well, the Oxford Dictionary says a conscience is an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. It's something inside of you that tells you what's right or wrong, whether you should do this or shouldn't do this. It's what helps you sort out a moral decision. Is it okay for me to go here? Is it not okay for me to go here? Is it okay for me to say this or should I not say this? It's, it's the voice that's in you. And every human being has a conscience. But not all consciences are equal, okay? Not everyone has the same sense of right or wrong, right? You've all experienced that in your time on this earth. But every healthy human 
has, to some degree, a sense of morality, of this is okay and that is not okay. And our conscience is meant to be a guide for us to do the right thing. But what happens? Some people choose to override their conscience, and they choose to do things against their conscience. And when they do, at least initially, they feel a little guilt, maybe a little regret. They've violated their own morals. But if you do this long enough and often enough, your morals start to change. And so then you get to people where they get to a place where they're doing things that you're like, how can they in conscience, good conscience, ever do that stuff? We have to understand this has been a process of degradation for for decades in some cases. Now, I, I mean, let's go back to my story at the beginning of this. I did not feel guilty about denting Nacho's truck because I didn't know if I had done it or not. But I did feel guilty about not coming forward and hiding behind my fear. And that was my conscience saying, oh, this isn't okay. All right? Now, as Christians, we not only have a conscience like everyone else, but we also have the Holy Spirit as a guide. All right? And I want you to understand that there's a difference between your conscience and the Holy Spirit. And and as Christians, we have both. Jesus said in John 16, 13, he said, when the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And when we do something that we shouldn't, we experience guilt from our conscience and conviction from the Holy Spirit. You're learning a lot of terms here today, right? So we, we, we feel that, that conscience giving us guilt, but we feel conviction coming from the Holy Spirit. And those two things working in tandem, working together, are meant to lead us into right relationship with God and other people. Those two guiding forces. Now, what do we call something that damages our relationship with God or others? Sin. Well done, church. You've learned this over time. Anything that damages relationship between us and God or us and others, it's sin. That's what we call it. That's a simple definition of it. And sometimes our conscience and the conviction of the Holy Spirit don't push us in the same direction. Sometimes our conscience is saying, oh no, this is really the way you want to go. But the Holy Spirit comes in and says, ah, no, actually, you're supposed to be going over here. And they're they're in conflict. Sometimes that's the way it is. That is when we know that our conscience is the one that has to change. In the same way that someone whose sense of morality can, can go downhill, our sense of morality can also go uphill. It can either go down toward hell or up toward heaven. And there's a difference in those things. Our sense of morality, because we're sinful people and we have a a brokenness in us, built into us, our sense of morality is distorted, no matter how righteous you think you are, right? And if we don't learn to hear the Spirit, what happens is sometimes we just follow our conscience into sin. That's why all of us have fallen into sin in our lives. So Joseph's brothers knew that they had sinned against their brother. They knew that. They knew sending someone, selling my own little brother into slavery is probably not a good thing. (laughs) They knew that wasn't okay. 
But they also recognized that by sinning against Joseph, they were sinning against God. Okay? Here's the thing. We, humans, are not designed to carry sin. We're not designed to tuck it away and hold it and keep it and live our lives with it. It's a burden that God wants to free us from. And when Jesus offered himself on the cross for every one of us, he offered to take the sins of the world, past, present, and future, all of the sins upon himself, to take them onto himself. He and only he could do this because he was the only one without sin. The perfect, unblemished sacrifice. And if you have sin in your life that hasn't been dealt with, guess what? You know you're not meant to carry it. Because your conscience, the Holy Spirit, who knows what else, you feel it. You know that you've got this burden. You know you've got this thing that doesn't belong in you. And that feeling inside of you that wants freedom is either your conscience or the Holy Spirit or both. But Jesus calls you to give him your sin and let him remove the guilt that comes along with it. Isaiah 118 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what he wants for us. That's what he wants for you. He doesn't want you walking around with a guilty conscience. Some people say, oh, it's just part of living life, you know? You kind of take those things and you just pile them up and at the end of your life, you're ready to die anyway because you've been carrying these burdens for so long. No, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not the life, the abundant life that God has for you. What he wants to do is he wants to pull those things off of you, take those things off of you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Guys, don't carry sin for another day. Repent. Be healed. The consequences might remain, but your soul will be set free and your conscience will be clear. All right, let's read the last section here, starting in verse 23. Back to the brothers here. And they've just all melted down and they say, yeah, there's a reckoning for his blood. Verse 23, it says, Now they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. He was speaking Egyptian, and they were speaking what they were speaking. And then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here it is, in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? And when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. 
But we said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you're not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So the brothers return home to Canaan and find a very unsettling discovery. Their money is back in their sacks. They've been set up. The money that they were using to buy this grain with has been buried back here in these sacks. And so now they realize if they go back, not only have they been accused of being spies, now they're going to be wanted men as thieves. They realize they can never go back. But not only that, one of their brothers, Simeon, is waiting for them to return and bail them out. But they're like, what do we do now? We're going to show back up here and be thrown into prison with Simeon. Is he, did he ever plan to let us have this guy back? What's going on? We don't know what to do. And so they plead with their father, Jacob. But Jacob will hear nothing of it. He chooses to count Simeon as just another lost son and move on. And when Jacob made that decision, the nine remaining brothers tried to do the same thing. Well, guys, I guess we just have to move on. We, we just have to, you know, act like it never happened. Put it behind us. Forget it. But that's not healing. That's not going to make things better. We tried to do the same thing with our own guilty consciences. I, I spent two days wrestling about that thing, right? Nobody's ever going to know. I can just pretend it never happened, and it, it'll act like it didn't. But did that make me feel better? No. Probably made me feel worse. How dare you trying to justify this, you know? But that's what we do. We try to just say, well, let's just pretend it didn't happen, and we'll just move on. Um, and, but it doesn't work. A reckoning will come, as Reuben described there. And this 20-year-old wound has been reopened in them, and now it's worse than it was on day one when they sold him into slavery. Now, thankfully, we're going to get some closure, all right, for Jacob and his sons next week. <laughs> but I do want to challenge you today with a question. Because I think if we jump all the way to the end here, and I will tell you, I originally planned to tell this whole story. We were going to read four chapters. It was going to be a mess. You'd be here till two. Um, I, but, but instead of that, I realized, here's what happens. We want to get to the good part of the story. We want to just kind of skim past all this and go on, move on. But instead, I want to challenge you with a question. 
Is your conscience clear before God today? Is it clear before God? Are you willing to allow him to search your soul, as the psalmist says, to see if there's any wickedness in you, anywhere, crammed down into your pinky toe, some spot, some thing, some place of bitterness or unforgiveness or sin or wickedness or evil, anything in you that doesn't belong there. And it could be 20 years old or older. If you find something there, here's the rest of the challenge. I didn't bring you in here just to make you all go home feeling guilty. (laughs) The challenge is that if you find something there, deal with it with God. Deal with it. Bring it to Him. He is gracious and He is merciful. And He wants you to live with a clear conscience. He wants you to feel free and have an abundant life and be, be a, a, a available to do and live the way he's calling you to. Now, I realize what I'm asking. It might take more than just a conversation with God on this to really get through it. He may show you that the path to healing requires an apology to someone else. It might mean restitution of some sort. It might take confession to another brother or sister in Christ. Do whatever he asks you to do. He loves you and he's leading you on the path to life. And today, being the first Sunday of the month, we also celebrate communion together as a church. Um, I want to go on and invite the band to come on back up here. And as we come to communion today, I want us to consider the words that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. It'll be on the screen here for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 23 to 32, because I think this all comes together here in communion. Here's what it says. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, keep, keep with me here. In verse 27, it says, And whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Listen to verse 28 here. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Do you see what he's saying here? He says, this is the time. And and however often you do this, as Jesus said, whenever you do this, 
You're going to do it in remembrance of me. What are we remembering about Jesus on the cross? We're remembering that he was willing to take our sin. And not only was he willing, he did it. He went through with it. And when we consider the sin that we sometimes want to hold on to and hang on to and store away somewhere, we realize we're not supposed to be carrying this. Instead, he wants to take it from us. And the cross is the example that he left for us and the physical reminders we do this where he says, it's in you still, get rid of it, bring it to me. My body was broken for that sin. My blood was shed to cleanse you of that unrighteousness. And so this is what I want you to do in the the next moment or two and through this first song as we begin um, preparing our hearts to, to receive communion. Don't try to just fake it until you make it. Get right with the Lord. And then we can celebrate communion together with Jesus with a clear conscience and a full heart. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this story today. I thank you for all that we can learn in this through the life of another. And it's encouraging to us, Lord, because we often recognize our own brokenness and we see that we're broken and we see that we have issues and we see that we're slow to repent and that we carry things that we shouldn't carry and and we get weighed down with the burden of our sin. But we're encouraged here today, Lord, because we see that you want to free us from that. And so God, as we prepare to take communion today, I pray that you would be with your people, be with your church, and cleanse us, Lord. So right there where you're at right now, just spend a moment or two speaking with God and asking him to search you and to know you. I don't want anybody to leave here this morning with with a guilty conscience. Confess your sins to him and he will forgive you those sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness.